Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. It's a huge pleasure to introduce Sean Pierce, Chief Technology Officer at Gusto. I'm extremely privileged having worked with Sean over five years. He's not only one of the most visionary leaders I know, but also has the biggest growth mindset, scaling with the company as it grew from only 30 people when he joined in 2015 to well over a thousand people today. Sean has built an incredible tech function, and he not only owns software engineering, but also data science, digital product, and tech ops systems. Most importantly, he's on the Gusto leadership team, obsessing about culture, customers, and our vision and purpose. In this episode, Sean will share why he resigned during year one at Gusto, what he learned from tragedy at an early age, and why he thinks the role of the CTO will be obsolete in 10 years. Sean, shall we start by talking a little bit about the lockdown and COVID-19 and, you know, how is it working from home? What gives you energy? From a team point of view, I've been just nothing but impressed, actually. I've been really, really pleased with how the team have come together, which has been fantastic. Yeah, uh, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I think from a, obviously from a sort of performance point of view, I mean, it's, it's put incredible stress on many, many teams. I think operations being the key one, but obviously my team in tech kind of really feeling the brunt of additional volume and lots of changing and, you know, operational edge cases where we're managing high load and supplier issues and things like that. Everyone's kind of come together. We've built tooling to kind of automate some of that stuff. So nothing but impressed, which is great. And on a more personal level, how are you staying sane? I think it's, you know, all the things you normally do, right? I mean, I, I exercise a lot. I think with, with something like this event, you've got to look at the positives. You know, there are, there are many negatives and there are many positives. And I think if you focus on the positives and really make sure you're making the most of them, then it really helps. And I think for me, you know, I'm not doing a big commute every morning and every evening. I'm, you know, that time I'm trying to use quite thoughtfully, whether it's kind of reading and catching up on things I was meant to be doing or, or exercise as well. I'm a keen runner. Um, I'm doing more hit classes, uh, just things like that as well, just to really expand what you'd normally do and kind of make the most of the time that you do get back. Nice, nice. What distance are you running? Oh, all sorts. I've just, I've done 10K this morning. It depends how I feel when I leave the house. So sometimes oh. it's 5K, sometimes it's 10. It can be longer at times. I've got a competition with a friend at the moment to run a sub 20 minute 5K. Sub so, 20. Um, yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah, a little bit of competition always helps. So we're, uh, we're sort of spurring each other on at the moment, which is, which is quite fun as well. But yeah, I've always, I mean, I've, I've been running since early 20s, really. I started and have, have always really enjoyed it. It's great headspace. It's great to kind of get out and switch off off and either think about things and work out problems or think about nothing I think you can kind of choose but yeah it's always been a big part of my um my day-to-day -day and sort of weekly habits really 
you and I went running um, last time together in Berlin uh, at a leadership team offsite. Um, and I remember it being very painful um, because we were talking <laughs> the entire time and I definitely couldn't hold up. Um, it wasn't, wasn't great for me. It was fun. It was fun. And that's actually one of the things I love is running in, um, in other locations as well, in other cities. It's a great way to go and discover Berlin. So you were, I remember you being a great guide, uh, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was good fun. And short, if you, if you forecast to 2025 and hopefully, you know, COVID will be done sooner, but what are the one or two things you would like to retain in your life once we're all back to normal? I think it's finding balance. I think, I think with any job like, like Gusto, we're in this sort of incredible environment of growth and uh, scaling teams and there's so much going on. And I think the key to making this whole thing sustainable is, is working out where your boundaries are, what's important to you and making sure that you kind of retain that. So, you know, for me, it's definitely, as we talked about, it's kind of exercise and making sure that I kind of keep that going and, and I maintain some flexibility in my schedule, I think, that I found during COVID that I, I wouldn't have had when I'm in the office every day and becoming a lot more comfortable with the fact that everyone is doing that and that, you know, everyone can own their day a bit more, I think, and, and do the things that are important to them. It's funny, I think I've not felt detached from anyone, whether that's kind of family or friends through this process as well. It's, we, I've been amazed how effective video calling can be and actually just kind of, you know, video calling my grandparents more is something I've, I've probably seen them more during COVID than I have before. And those things are really important. And actually, you can get a lot, I think, out of, of a simple video call. So, you know, I think we've all learned a lot about how to communicate and how to stay close to people during this time. And even when Look, well, lockdown is easing and as, as things get a lot easier, I think there's, there's elements of that you want to maintain. Yeah, I'm amazed by how um, good my parents are becoming with technology, um, mm. to be honest. It's not been their, their strength um, in the past. Um, so it's quite nice to see. Um, where do your grandparents live? Uh, not far, well, 30 or 40 miles away down, down the road near Reading in a village called Hurst. So, you know, I get out there quite often. I go to see them. Um, it's really nice. You know, I'm privileged to, to have my grandparents and, um, you know, yeah, try and get out there as often as I can. But it's, it's really difficult at the moment. They're both, you know, one's in their 80s, one's in their 90s. Very cautious about seeing them and, and things like that as well. So I'm very pleased that this has happened in 2020 and not 2005 because I just, you know, going back to very early days of working and I just can't imagine how this would have all happened without video calling, without all of the kind of conferencing software that we've got, the technology we've got to stay, to stay connected. I mean, I think before it had been a lot of phone calls and a, and a, and a very big phone bill at the time as well. So it's, it's amazing, I think, to, to use technology and um, kind of get by as best we can during this time. Just on your grandparents, um, is Reading where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in Reading. So yeah, I always, always lived there up until I, I went off to university, actually. And my, my parents are from Reading. So yeah, that's very much home. And I try and get back as much as I can. Busy life in London, busy job, everything else. But yeah, that's where, where I grew up. And how, how was growing up like? Good, yeah. Um, well, I say I was about to say a fairly typical childhood, but I'm not sure what a typical childhood is. So <laughs> I have one brother, a younger brother, two years younger than me. And yeah, I come from a, a fairly kind of, well, I, I guess originally a work, working class background. My dad left school with no qualifications, worked hard. He was a welder. He was a builder, but eventually started his own building company and kind of grew a business in London, actually kind of employing about 30 people doing renovations for, for houses. 
it was a really sort of comfortable childhood. I think my, one of the things I always took away from my childhood is that you don't necessarily need to have all the qualifications in the world, but I think if you've got a good brain and you work hard, you can make a really good life for yourself. And I think that's something I always sort of look back on in, in my dad and kind of really appreciate the amount of hard work he did, I think, to kind of create that comfortable life for my mom and, and my brother and myself. You know, I think when I, I sort of referenced a typical childhood back then, I mean, what, one thing that, that, that did affect me when I was younger was that my, my dad actually passed away. Um, he was in a car accident when I was 11 years old. So it was oh, my so childhood true. is kind of, I always think of in two halves. There's kind of the childhood before and then the, the, the childhood after, after I was 11. So that all happened over the, over the summer between leaving primary school and going to secondary school. So you know, that was obviously a huge event for not just me, but, but my entire family. And I think I'm probably only now sort of discovering how it affected me. Um, it's something you don't really realize that I think through your teens and your twenties, you kind of get on with things. I think, you know, hitting your thirties, I think moving into jobs where you need to understand yourself a bit more, you definitely reflect and you start to understand a bit more about what that did and how it shaped you. And, and those kind of events are huge, but they're not always negative in, in terms of how they shape. You take a lot from them, you grow, you have to grow a lot of resilience. So that's something that, that was, you know, a big, big impact on me when I was growing up. Um, wow. um, and as I was going into school, sort of, it was a, a big change for me. Well, I'm yeah. really sorry to hear. And um, if we went remote, I would give you a hug now, but um, <laughs> we are remote. Um, and how, how has this, this influenced you? And, and one of the things that always, always um, are one of your standout qualities, Sean, I think, is, is this huge level of resilience and strength of character, you know, going all the way from a tiny company of 30 people to over a thousand people um, and scaling along the company. Do you think to some extent that's, that's influenced you? It definitely has. There are certain events that you can look back on and you remember them very well. And I think th there was one particular time when I was the, I was the older brother and someone said to me, I think it was a family friend or something that kind of, you know, you're the man of the house now you need to, to look after everyone. Wow. And it was one of those points where you, it, it's funny, adults can say thing to, things to children pretty off the cuff and not think much more of it, but certain things I think really stick with kids. And that was certainly something that kind of stuck with me. And I'm sure it, I think it created this tendency to, to want to get on in life, to want to make sure that I have a comfortable life and that I can look after people. And I think, I think it did have that impact. And again, you know, you're not aware of it at the time. You're not aware of it 10 years later, but I think over time, as you start to, to reflect, you start to see certain traits in your character and you can start to understand sort of how you've been shaped. So I think that was, that was definitely something that kind of spurred me on. I think when I was a bit, bit younger. Wow. It's a lot um, to happen to anyone at age 11 is um, particularly hard. And, you know, your parents didn't study. You then went on to study computer science. Did anyone in your family influence you regarding um, programming? Did it become very popular back then? Yeah, it's funny. So, I mean, the, the decision to go to uni, actually, I almost felt wasn't a decision because, uh, again, it's one of those moments you remember as a kid. I remember... And it wouldn't have been long before my dad died, actually. I remember him sitting me down. I was, I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom, I think. And I remember him sitting me down and, and having one of those kind of more serious talks with it, however serious a talk with a 10-year-old can be, about him not kind of working as hard as he wished he had. And he wished he'd got more qualifications and he'd wished he'd done, done, a, you know, done more back then. And how much he wanted me to go to university. And it was important to him that, that, that I did that. So... 
I think regardless of then what happened with, with my dad, I, I would have always gone to university. That, that conversation stuck in my head. You know, that was, I was always going to study and I was always going to go to university. So that, that, was, that was set in stone. I always knew I'd do that. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a long time. Uh, that, that, that question that, again, adults ask children, what do you want to do when you grow up? always really, really troubled me because there were too many choices and I didn't have a clue. But yeah, I was interested in lots of things growing up. I was actually, I've always been interested in food. And at one point I did, I did consider whether actually university wasn't for me and whether I, I wanted to be a chef. I did work experience in... Uh, well, I had part-time jobs in hotel kitchens. I worked in restaurants. I, I loved cooking. And I always remember kind of, you know, those first few jobs you had in a, in, a, in a kitchen were absolutely brutal, kind of being asked to first job. I think there was a chef who was French and he, uh, he kind of got, it was my first day and he kind of gave me my first job of the day, which was like, can you cut, can you cut parsley? And I said, like, yeah, I can cut parsley. That's fine. And he went into the fridge and kind of came out with literally sort of two bin bags of parsley over both shoulders. And he's like, right, cut that. And that was my first eight hours working in a kitchen was, was cutting parsley. I smelt of parsley for weeks afterwards. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was events like that that made, made me realize that actually maybe being a chef wasn't for me. Uh, it felt like it's far too much hard work. And it was probably about that time as I was growing up that, that computers well, the internet was becoming a thing. Uh, we had the internet at school, which just seemed like absolute magic to me. <laughs> My dad was always into computers. He had computers all the way through growing up. It was almost a hobby for him as well. So I'd always had this kind of interest in technology. And at the very last minute, I decided to do an A-level in computing. So it wasn't until that kind of age that I, I really started to get in, interested in computers. But as soon as I made that decision to do that A-level... It was the first time at school that something really resonated with me and I just really enjoyed it and I wanted to do it, you know, in school, out of school. I really enjoyed the creativity of programming and it was something that kind of just really filled my brain and I, I just loved it. And so from that point, I, I knew that I would then go to university and, and do a degree in computing or computer science of, of some sort and, um, and go on to, to do programming. That was kind of the thing that I always wanted to do. So. Nice. And how, how was university? really fun. <laughs> um, I mean, I've met lifelong friends at university that I still see nearly, you know, nearly every, every week. It's a time that I, yeah, always really treasure, I think. And you, know, you learn a lot at university. I think the first thing is it's the first time in your life that no one's there kind of telling you, you need to work or you need to work hard or, you know, it's very much for you to do. And actually I think, you know, growing up, my mum was, she wasn't one of those mums that, sat me down and made me do my homework at a certain time and nagged me to do it and told me to do things and checked on my homework. She gave me a lot of space. And I think that that produced a lot of trust, but it also kind of made me quite, it just kind of, I drove myself forward. I was quite responsible of making sure I, I did work. So all through my A-levels, I was, I was quite like that. And so when I got to university, it wasn't a huge change. Um, definitely not the same for some people I went to university with, but I, you know, I w worked hard. I really, again, I had a passion for the subjects and I think that hugely helped. So I, I was really enjoying working, studying, but of course I was yeah, down in Brighton. I was really in enjoying socializing, meeting lots of new people, discovering new music, you know, all the things I think you normally do at university. And yeah, and I think the main thing that I, well, I left with a degree, but actually I left with a whole bunch of, of yeah, as I said, really good friends who I, I still see often and the whole kind of startup culture that started in Silicon Valley and obviously came over to London is something that, that, that I was probably too early for. And actually now I think I would have left uni and would have loved to have gone straight into a startup and kind of worked in that, that industry and in that environment and in a real scale up uh, type environment. But that wasn't around. It wasn't, or it didn't feel like an option. I wasn't connected to that. I wasn't reading about it at all. So actually for me, 
when it came to getting a job after uni, or in fact, I, I did a placement year, I looked at the consultancies as a, as, a, as a place where, you know, really interesting technology was done. So I actually, I, got a, I did a year in, uh, in industry in between my second and third years at university at Accenture. And it's typical, typical me, really. I think they came, I didn't do a huge amount of upfront planning. They came in, they did a presentation at uni. They showed off a, a project at the Monaco Rally. And I thought, oh, that, that sounds great. <laughs> um, I didn't end up on the Monaco Rally. I ended up at the London Stock Exchange, so quite different. But it was a pathway that just kind of appeared to a certain extent. And I kind of took the opportunity and went off and did, it, did a year in industry at first. And then, and then actually really enjoyed it, really enjoyed what I was learning, really enjoyed the culture. And so it um, was offered a job after that that I could return to after my third year of studying. So I, I took it and it gave me some security. It gave me a, actually gave me a signing on bonus of which I spent nice. traveling around South America for, uh, for six months before, uh, before starting. And how did you then end up at Amazon? I've been in lots of different projects at, at Accenture. Um, and I'd, I'd found myself kind of oscillating between deep technical roles. I've always, you know, it goes back to this original passion. I, I love technology. I love programming. I love creating things with technology. And sometimes I, I'm not happier than when you stick me in front of a code editor and I can build something and, and create something. But at the same time, I always really enjoyed playing a broader role, leading teams, working with, with the clients at Accenture on, on what the business problem was that, were, that, that was being solved as well. So I'd been, I'd been jumping around for years doing quite deep technical work and then coming out and then leading, leading teams, leading accounts. And I've been doing that for a while and I happened to be working on a, a project where it was a, a sort of deep technical role at well, a client where they were building out their first ever kind of public web platform on AWS. So I'd started to kind of build those skills. I'd started to get very, you know, very deep into that technology. And I was working really closely with a number of people at Amazon at the time. And it was actually the, the, the role I was on Accenture was probably one of my favorite roles I've ever done, actually, because it was that perfect combination of deep technology. We were working, it was a, a big oil and gas business, and it was the first time they were ever going to use uh, public cloud. And so there was a huge amount of kind of getting people, this was back in 2013, the cloud was a pretty... Um, unique and unusual thing at the time. So there was a lot of work to build confidence in data security and availability and things like that. So I spent half my time programming a solution, half my time presenting to all the way up to the kind of CTO of this business, um, presenting on what we were doing to solve problems like resiliency and security and things like that. But it was the best of both worlds in, in one project, which I don't get very often. But I, as I said, I was, I was working with Amazon really closely at the time, and, and they kind of talked to me about the, the, some of the roles at, at Amazon. And I felt I'd done eight years at Accenture at the time. I felt like probably I'd, I'd done enough. It was an absolutely fantastic eight years. And you learn, you just learn a huge amount at a consultancy like that. Every time you, you get comfortable, you know, six months of doing a role, you'd suddenly, everything would change. You know, you'd, be, you'd go into a new client or you'd be given a new role with the same client you'd often be sold in as an expert in something that you probably didn't feel like you were an expert in. So that feeling of having to prove yourself kind of every six months was great because I, I learned a huge amount. I think I learned to sort of back myself a bit more than I otherwise would have. I always went into roles very nervous and, and had to prove myself, but kind of proved to myself that I could do it over time. But it, I'd been doing that for eight years. It felt like enough was enough. And I, I fancied a new challenge. I wanted to understand a bit more about what different cultures were like, what different, how different businesses run. And this opportunity came up at Amazon to work as a, as a solutions architect. So a very, very technical role, 
but it was the very early days of, of Amazon Web Services at all. And it was a very small team in the UK. So it was almost like going to join a, a startup within Amazon, helping other people to adopt the cloud, understand the technologies, understand the implications of those technologies, not just on the technology, but on their organization and their people and, and everything like that as well. So it was, a, it was another consulting role but in a very different environment, very different context. And again, yeah, great learning experience for me, I think, sort of picking up very different challenges to what you'd normally see in, in Accenture. And then in 2015, you walked away from, you know, prestigious Amazon into this tiny, low-budget startup <laughs> called Gusto. You know, talk me through why, why would you leave Amazon? The cloud is hugely on the rise. Um, it's very glamorous, I guess. The growth momentum is enormous. What excited you about the opportunity of joining Gusto, a very small company at this stage um, of, I think, less than 30 employees? I always think of it as a, it was definitely a mixture of being pulled to Gusto and, and there was some element of push of the role. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about both. And what I mean by push is that I'd come into this, this environment in Amazon. It was an absolutely fantastic opportunity. As you say, it was the, the very early days or you know, early days of, of mass adoption of the cloud. I was learning huge, you know, deep skills in the technologies. I was getting really involved in all sorts of interesting customers from big enterprises to startups. Um, and my job was to be an expert and, and to really understand the technologies deeply and really kind of you know, act as a, as, a, as a helping hand to all of these businesses. And in many ways, I was absolutely loving it. I you know, was really enjoying what I was learning. I was really enjoying understanding the Amazon culture, how it ticks, how it's scaled. Amazon have a huge investment in kind of learning in people. And, and I, was, I was in a way like very happy. But I was, I was, there was something missing and I couldn't, I couldn't work it out. Uh, this was like kind of, this went on for 18 months and there was just something missing and I didn't feel quite happy and I couldn't put my finger on it. I talked to lots, lots of people about it. Um, on paper, everything was perfect, but there was, there was something missing. And I think reflecting what it boiled down to is I, I was missing feeling ownership of something. The role that Amazon was light touch consulting. So you go in, you, you talk to customers, you draw on the whiteboard, you tell them, you know, what, the, what you believe the right thing to do is. But you didn't always have the opportunity to follow up. Sometimes you didn't, didn't know how your advice went down, whether the, the business was successful or the, the venture was successful. Or even if you did, you were still very much kind of a, a third party and you weren't in the middle of those plans. And I missed creating something. I missed creating technology. I missed building teams. I, I missed feeling like I really owned something. So that was the, when I talk about a push, there was, there was something there that, that wasn't quite right for me. Um, and it, it took me a while to, to find out. On the pull side, I think, as I said, I, I kind of missed that startup revolution very early on when I left university. And I'd always been fascinated by startup culture, you know, just that, that idea of entrepreneurship and starting businesses from scratch and having to be scrappy and, and, and moving quickly. And the whole thing always appealed to me. And I'd, I'd always said that at some point I wanted to, um, to become a CTO at a startup. That was, that was my goal. It was actually on my PDP at Amazon. And I did my PDP with my boss. And a month later, I handed in my notice to go and, to go and work at Gusto. So it was a bit quicker than I think he, he was hoping for. But, but anyway, I, I digress. So yeah, it, and the, the opportunity came up at Gusto. I think, I think I was introduced to Gusto via a recruiter. But as soon as I started talking about it, understanding more about the business, I, I, loved, I loved it. I loved the idea. I loved this combination of, of food and technology, uh, two of my kind of biggest passions. And the more I came into Gusto, the more I met people, the more I realized that there was a, a very small team of really special people kind of working on something in an incredibly passionate way. 
and the alignment with my passions just meant that I was, yeah, I, w- I was hooked. But that's not to say it wasn't an easy decision. And I think I often talk about this to, to, to people when I'm kind of reflecting on my own ability to, to make decisions. It was the first time that I found, I, I was kind of confronted with this hugely kind of analytical, sort of overly logical brain kind of trying to weigh up the positives of staying with Amazon and the positives of moving to Gusto. So I think it took me about six months, I think, of talking to you, talking to others within Amazon, to, uh, to, within Gusto to finally make the decision. So it wasn't easy, but looking back, I'm, I'm you know, absolutely glad I did. Uh, so, so am I, hugely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember us um, jumping on a call whilst I was traveling to Brazil. Yes, um, yeah, we had a that. couple of conversations during that time and really going through the vision and kind of the passion for the team. And you clearly, clearly were, were extremely engaged um, and fascinated. But at the same time, you know, I felt like this, this is a pretty big um, decision going into this tiny, tiny business. Um, Gusto was back then. Mm. So I'm really glad you did. Uh, sometimes I think with decision making, you can try and predict the future too much, and it's it's almost impossible. So you know, I had no idea whether Gusto would be, you know, something that that took off and was successful, or at the time, you know, I just didn't know enough to know whether it whether it wouldn't, and it would be, you know, one of the statistics. And I mean, you know, it was a bit of a leap, leap, but um, yeah, I'm hugely glad I did. And actually, looking back, you know, even if Gusto wasn't successful, it would have been the best decision I made because I think you you learn so much, especially in those early years, you, you have to learn so much. You have to accelerate yourself so quickly. You know, I think I've matured and learned a lot more about what it is to, to lead teams and to, to lead technology, uh, much more than I ever would in, in a, in a larger business. So yeah, not easy, but definitely the right decision. And once you decided to join, how did the team then look? So 30 people in the office, how many people were in technology back then? I think there was five. I often tell this story and the number always changes with like four, five, six. It was definitely a small number. Uh, they could definitely all sit around one table because um, there was one seat at the end of the table, which was mine on day one. So that's where I sat and it, my whole team were there. So tiny team, very, very early days. It was the right technology for the time, but it was very much kind of technology built quickly to kind of get the business moving. And I don't think it really dawned on me until those first few weeks quite, you know, how much work there was to do and what we needed to do and the, the sort of mountain we had to climb. But yeah, it was certainly it was certainly an interesting couple of weeks as I first joined and, and, and realized, yeah, everything we needed to do in the months and years to come. And how did you how did you feel? Were you anxious? Did you feel like, yes, effort, we can do it. Here's the vision um, from a technology point. What went through your mind back then? Oh, it's, it, every emotion under the sun, I think. I mean, <laughs> the, the ones, the ones that jump out. So definitely excited. I had a vision. I had like a picture in my mind's eye of what Gusto would be, you know, very vivid, like, you know, the team, the people, the office, like I could just imagine like how it could turn out. So there was a lot of excitement about that. And then I think there's a lot of anxiety when you arrive at kind of the, the difference between where you are and where you want to be. Uh, and I don't think any amount of kind of thinking deeply and preparing before day one can kind of really set you up for that. I think it's only when you start and you start to go through the first few weeks, you meet the team, you understand more about the technology, you start to realize. So definitely there was an element of anxiety. I think there was an element of of feeling very exposed. I think in an environment like Gusto in those early days, like in my mind, success or failure was very black or white. I was either going to be successful or I was going to fail. And if I failed, it would be pretty obvious. And I think that played on my mind through the first few months, kind of trying to understand what I needed to do. And it, it, there was a lot of 
kind of stress in some ways that kind of drove me forward. I think I was definitely feeling, feeling that, that, that level of exposure. Yeah. And it, I remember it was incredibly difficult uh, to convince you to join the company. You know, back then you must have earned the highest salary by far. I couldn't even pay myself a salary back then. I think um, it was very, very tough for us as a company and, and surely extremely difficult for you joining this company. And I remember one day you sent me an email. Can you remember that? <laughs> I sent you many emails, but I can Im <laughs> probably imagine which email this is. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I guess the end is I sent you an email actually handing in my my resignation after not very long of, of actually being at Gusto. So it was a it was a very turbulent, I think it was about six months in. Mm-hmm. And reflecting on it, I mean, there's a number of things I think happened. I think, as I talked about, there was that level of kind of feeling exposed. And and I also, you know, something I've learned about myself since is I'm, I'm an incredibly impatient person. I had that vision of where I wanted to be. And all of a sudden, I had a very long list of things that I needed to do to get there. And in hindsight, I pushed far too hard, far too quickly with, with my team. So I wanted to, to bring in certain kind of agile development techniques. Everything needed to be in JIRA. We needed to do X, we needed to do Y. And I think, you know, I was some guy coming in, there was a team of five, you know, engineers that had been working together and built all this software that had got Gusto to where it was. And then, you know, who's this guy appearing with all these, <laughs> you know, rules and structure and methodologies. And I don't think I was very aware of the impact I was having on some of those individuals at the time. And so actually it was, it was a really difficult first six months. Um, I was meant to be, you know, my goal was to come in and scale the team. And, and actually what happened was, you know, I had two or three resignations very early on. So the team was shrinking rather than growing. And I, I suddenly, you know, I just had that moment where I, I felt this yeah, huge amount of anxiety about whether I was going to be successful or not. I've never felt sort of that I think stress, I, I will call it stress, stress like mm -hmm. it where other people were unhappy, people were quitting on me. And I, I just took it as this huge kind of um, sort of personal failure that I couldn't kind of keep these people in the team. And so there were, yeah, there were a lot of pressures and, and I, I had a moment where I just thought, I just, I don't think this is for me. I think this is, yeah, maybe I'll go back to Amazon. Actually it was, it was quite good there. I certainly didn't, you know, it, it didn't feel as, um, as stressed in those early days. And so, yeah, I, I remember sending you that email. Again, it was decision-making isn't my strong point sometimes. So it wasn't an easy email to write. I was going back and forth, thinking about the options, you know, the pros and cons for both. But yeah, you did, you did get that email at some point. <laughs> well, I'm hugely <laughs> glad you stayed. Um, and it must have been extremely difficult for you to hire people. You know, we didn't even um, have an office near Tube Station. You had, literally had to take the bus to get where we are. Your office looked pretty, pretty run down. We didn't have any budget. Any, any fun stories about trying to, to hire developers? Like, was it easy back then? Surely not. <laughs> no, definitely not easy. No, no. I think, I think, again, it's that there's this vision of a startup that I think people have in their minds. Um, and I think I did as well. But they're not really imagining a startup. They're imagining a scale-up that's gone through seven or eight years of really hard work <laughs> to get where they got to. And so you have this vision of this cool office with you know bean bags and I don't you know all the cliches you think of of a startup and I had that in my mind and I know that every engineer I tried to hire had that in their mind and then the reality is that they come to their interview they get the uh, you know they get the central line out to Shepherd's Bush which is already quite far then they realise they've got to get the 207 bus up the Oxbridge Road which is another <laughs> kind of 20 30 minutes and then they eventually track down our office and then they 
they imagine walking into a startup environment with a receptionist somewhere, I think, and they sort of trip over the step and land on the first table, which is probably you and I think David at the time kind of working. Um, and we always remember seeing people's faces when they walked in and, and kind of saw the office. And, and so that was difficult. And, um, and, and for some people, it influenced them and it, they decided, you know, all of that wasn't for them. But for some, they, 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 were, they were interested in the challenge. And I think it was, it was quite a divide. And it, it probably, in a way, helped us to hire the right people early on. You know, the people that were really interested in what we were doing as a business, really interested in, in what they could learn at Gusto and the, the, um, the opportunity it gave them. But for the people that wanted that kind of cool startup environment with the beanbags and the free breakfast, you know, it just wasn't there. We didn't have it and we couldn't afford it. And I think that was a that was a lesson for me and it was eventually a lesson for lots of the, the people that kind of came in the door interviewing as well. But we got there, you know, and we hired, we've hired some great people over the years. Not everyone's still with us. I think everyone is, is with Gustate for a certain bit of the journey. And some people have gone back to wanting to be at earlier stage businesses again. And, and some people have scaled and, and are still here today. You know, some of the people that we hired in that first year are now kind of senior architects and, and leaders within Gusto. So it's been, it's been a, a good journey, but definitely the hiring at the start was, was not the easiest. And on a personal level, I mean, you moved from being a specialist, you know, leading a tiny team, still being heavily involved in architecture to becoming this really well-rounded, really impactful leader, you know, running a team of almost 200 people, combining data science, engineering, tech ops systems, you know, um, digital products, so many different areas. How have you found the personal challenge scaling yourself? Yeah, I wonder if, uh, if you ask my team if they think I'm uh, <laughs> too involved in architecture still. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a really long and interesting journey, I think, over the last five years. I think I've changed and, and learned more in the, these five years than I did in, you know, for the rest of my career combined, definitely. As I said before, I'd, always, I'd spent my early career kind of oscillating between these two roles of kind of leading teams and leading things and then, and then going back into deep technology. And I have to admit, even when I, when I first joined Gusto, I, I still felt that. I still felt that pull in both directions. And so I, and I was, you know, the first six months of Gusto, I was actually developing. I was, I was building some of the platform that we, we run all of our microservices on and I was getting my hands dirty. And actually that, that was really enjoyable. But I think the nice thing over the last five years is I've become much more comfortable with my role changing. So it doesn't feel like I'm being pulled in, in two directions anymore. I actually feel very comfortable with my role now as a, you know, a, a leader of people and of teams and, and scaling. And ultimately all of these you know, detailed decisions around technology and architecture are done by, by other people. And, and my job is to hire the best people I can and, you know, motivate them and align them and, and get everyone doing the, doing the right thing. So I've actually really enjoyed that five years. And I think it's one of the key things for me, I think is just investing more in my own leadership capabilities and actually there was a big kind of inflection point, I think, where I started to think about leadership as a skill like no other, just like learning to program in Python or, or in any other language. It's, it's a skill and you need to work at it. You need to learn, you need to read, you need to practice. And I'd always in my mind, I think, thought that leadership was something you were born with. You know, you were just kind of good at it for some reason and you could walk into a room and make the right impression and align people and, and take people with you. But I realized over those, you know, five, the last five years at Gusto that that's, that's not always the case. And actually, it's, it's a skill that you need to learn. And, and since then, I think I've spent more time kind of trying to invest in that, which has been great. Kept me, you know, it's, I'm really interested in it as a, as a skill in its own right. And I think that's one of the key things I say to, to many of my team now is that you, 
despite how busy Gusto is, you, you need to find the time to kind of invest in yourself. You need to re- reflect on what you've achieved, understand how you could do things better, you know, read up, make the most of coaching opportunities, mentoring, like all of those things are, are so important. And I, I've, I've been doing that more and more over the last five years. And I, I think that's really helped. Yeah, it's such a powerful point investing in yourself as the company, you know, still doubles pretty much every single year in size and your role is um, being completely redefined. And then, you know, two years ago, we started, uh, you know, testing the tribe model. Today, we run a full tribe model across all of Gusto. Can you talk a bit about our operating model um, and, and tribes and what the benefits are? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is probably something that I'm most passionate about now. So it's, it's not technology anymore. It's, it's people operating models. <laughs> and uh, I've always felt strongly that I think technology in isolation is, is not powerful. You know, I think the best businesses that I've read about, that I've been inside, that I understand are businesses that can really combine deep insight of the customer, deep insight of what the business itself needs. And then you can apply technology to those, those problems. So we have three tribes. We have growth that look over uh, working closely with marketing, kind of growing our business, attracting and retaining customers. We have menu, which looks over our our core proposition for customers. So the food that customers get, the recipes, the unboxing experience, you know, everything that makes up that kind of gusto experience for a customer. And then we have our supply tribe, which looks over the the physical delivery of the box. Um, So that's everything from how a box is delivered, the immediacy of the product, the quality of what's in the box and everything else as well. Those tribes are very, very cross-functional. So it's, it's technology people, it's product people, it's operations people, it's marketing people. Um, and they're in every single one of those tribes kind of working hand in hand on, on the problems. I, I'm probably not the person to, to judge. Maybe I should ask, ask you because I <laughs> drove it forward in the first place. But I think that I, I personally see much more aligned teams, uh, hugely motivated teams, teams that are kind of really proud of what they're achieving and, very connected to the goals and the, um, you know, the commercials of what we're trying to achieve at Gusto as well. So from my point of view, I think it's been a, it's been a big success and I'm sort of excited to, to do more of it in the future as well. So the leadership team is, is pretty diverse. You know, we have always believed in, in cognitive diversity, but it's also really, really difficult. You know, if you link this back to technology to really, really have this, fantastic cognitive diversity within technology where historically it's been really difficult to have enough you know female coders for example if you look at stem you know how many people are actually graduating from computer science who are then female or bame you know it's very small numbers how do you feel about this sean and what more can i you gusto um do to really really create a positive inclusive culture there's lots we all need to do and that's kind of both you and I and Gusto but but I think the wider technology industry as well you know I think you can you can look at the system and it's clear that there are problems all through the system through education through into the into the workplace but I think it you know at Gusto we need to to focus on a, a number of things I think one of them one of the biggest takeaways I had from kind of learning more about this subject and going to conferences going to meetups is that you know, one of the most important things you can do to support diversity inclusion is, is to get a good culture in place. And, and by good, I mean, you know, the, a good culture for everyone um, and a high performing culture, one where we support each other, one where we, you know, lean into creating teams, one where we can be open and honest with each other. And that's just going to create a good culture full stop. It's going to create a, a culture where teams trust each other. Therefore, you know, they, they move quickly, they achieve more. 
So, you know, that and that goes through from everything from hiring and making sure that we, you know, we don't over bias towards just the technology skills you have, but we bias towards kind of your culture fit and making sure you're the right kind of person that's going to help us create the right, the right underlying culture. All of that builds the foundations for then building, you know, a, a diverse team. I think one of the other things we need to do, and certainly I need to do within technology more, is, is making sure that we hire role models. You know, I, th- I think it's great to be now, we're focusing a lot on graduate programs, bringing in people from things like Makers Academy, et cetera. And, you know, we're making sure that we, we have a diverse intake of, of engineers and product people into the team. But I don't think that's enough. I think you have to solve the problem at both ends. So actually hiring, you know, hiring role models, whether that's engineering managers, people within the, the, the Gusto MT, it's really important, I think, that people have others to look up to. And so that's definitely something that, that we are, well, we need to focus on, we are focusing on as well. And if you fast forward by 10 years, how do you think will the, you know, the future of the CTO role look by 2030? a few years is such a long time in technology sometimes, but I think one of the clear things that we're learning at Gusto is that, you know, technology isn't just about creating a, a great customer experience. It's not just about creating an efficient operation. You know, you can leverage technology in every single aspect of your, of your business. So whether that's the way that we develop new recipes in our kitchen to, you know, the way that we reconcile purchase orders in finance, like there's opportunity everywhere to either do more, go faster, um, build a better experience for customers in some way. You know, I think technology just becomes more and more deeply embedded into to every part of every business. And so to a certain extent, I kind of joke with people on the leadership team about this is that, you know, everyone will need to be a CTO. If you're a CFO, if you're a CMO, if you're a CPO, well, part of your job is going to be in be being a CTO because technology is going to be so deeply embedded into your function, what you need to do to be successful. So I think, you know, technology will become much, much broader. And, and I think it's, it won't just be the CTO making technology decisions. I think the CTO will very much support every single functional leader to make sure that they're set up for success. So um, effectively, this, the role of the CTO will be obsolete then? <laughs> might be you know, will, will you have a very strong VP engineering by then or how... You know how how will this play out? I think there will always be there will definitely always be a role for a CTO, but but I guess what I'm saying is is you the CTO will be there to play one specific role, but everyone will need to be thinking about technology, whether you're a CTO or CRO or any, anyone else. The CTO itself, I think, you know, one of the clear trends that we've seen over the last kind of five to well ten years probably is this continually kind of building on other other people's innovation. So. You know, back 10 years ago, the advent of cloud technologies, platform as a service, software as a service, it means that the businesses now can consume technology in all sorts of different ways. And you often consume, you know, the finished product, whether that's a, a SaaS platform, or you, you, you consume the foundations in which you can innovate on top of. So I think the role as a CTO in the future will be a lot about assessing that and putting a strategy together to really understand kind of where are others innovating? Where can we leverage that innovation? Where, we, where can we build on, on top of it? But I think the other thing combined with that is that doesn't mean that you stop innovating. I think you know, every single business, no matter what you do uh, in, in 2030, will need to innovate using technology. I think the key will be not innovating in a place where others can innovate more than you, but instead kind of working out what value you can add within your business and making sure that you really focus your, your internal resources there. So I think that, you know, the CTO role is going to get broader. It's going to really have to understand, deeply understand kind of every function and their needs, but also really understand the industry 
you know, the secret to success, I think, will be making the call between what, what's built, what's bought within a business. Ultimately, we are so customer obsessed. We focus on, you know, NPS all day, customer retention, customer satisfaction, social momentum. It's so, so, so important to us. Everything we do is, is, is around food. So I don't want to kind of talk, talk the food aspect down. Food and, you know, safety, health and safety. Those obviously matter the world. And as we become a bigger company, we, you know, all of a sudden we constantly have to be cognizant where we need discipline and where we need entrepreneurship. Whereas five years ago when you joined, we probably focused a lot more on entrepreneurship and breaking things. Whereas today, you know, obviously in the factory and when it comes to supply chain, it's all about discipline, process, structure, resilience, backup plans. Um, so it's, it's changed quite a bit um, over that time. Um, and Sean, what, what would you tell uh, people who want to be CTOs in the next couple of years? What are the one, two, three you know, lessons learned or, or the advice you can give? One of the main things is invest in yourself. I think, as I said before, I think scaling or being a CTO in a kind of hyper growth scale up business is incredibly demanding and you're, you're all, you'll feel like you're in a different job every six months at best, probably every three months sometimes where you look around and your team scaled and the complexity of the problems have changed and the maturity of your peers within the business has changed. And if you focus too much at the, on the immediate problem at hand and you lose sight of the fact that you've got to scale yourself, then I think that that becomes difficult really quickly. It's easier said than done, but you know, finding the time to really reflect on what you've done over the last week, what's gone well, what hasn't gone well, why hasn't it gone well, you know, what have you learned about yourself, how can you kind of address that next time? It's, it's something you've got to become really disciplined with. And again, it's something I've had to learn quickly at Gusto because I didn't come into, the, into Gusto with that mindset at all. I've had to kind of pick it up and learn it. And I think we have a culture of, of that slightly, which, is, which has really helped me. I think the second thing is, is be resilient. It's not an easy job <laughs> and it means that you, you will fail along the way and things won't go well. And, you know, at some point you'll find that difficult. And I think, I think getting through those times is really important. Again, having the determination to succeed and, and, and taking the time to reflect on why things haven't gone well are really important, but you, you really need that resilience, I think. And if you can combine that resilience with, with reflection and investing in yourself, then that's the kind of cycle I think that helps you to grow quickly. Fantastic points. Really love those. Thank you so much, Sean. No worries. No, thanks, Timmy. Cheers. Cheers.